0: Welcome to the Data-Centric Podcast, where we explore leading practices for becoming a data-first organization. Our guest on this first episode of the Data-Centric Podcast is Dave McComb, a pioneer and one of the most prolific thought leaders in the data-centric space. He's the president of Semantic Arts, where he helps clients adopt semantic knowledge graphs as the foundation for unified and reusable data is also the author of two books the data-centric revolution restoring sanity to enterprise information systems and software wasteland how the application-centric mindset is hobbling our enterprises in our conversation today dave shares his definition of data centricity provides advice for digital leaders wanting to modernize and explains his vision for spreading data-centric approaches across industries so here's my conversation with dave McComb. Hello, Dave. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, you bet, Ruben. Thank you. Let's start by you sharing your story and telling us how you became one of the top data centric thought leaders in the world. Hmm, boy. <laughs> it should be a softball, but um so I
1: suppose, you know, it started way back when I, I started my career at Arthur Anderson, which became Anderson Consulting, which became Accenture. And I used to build enterprise applications, you know, built two custom ERP systems from the ground up and all kinds of systems. And I was sort of proud of myself and happy about it until I started, still the whole, until the industry started becoming systems integration. And I started wondering, why is that? And why is it that a customer would have dozens of inventory systems? and you know we wandered into one place where they had accidentally implemented some form of invoicing twenty three times you know just different. They had an elevator permitting system that needed an invoice and a claims overpayment system and and all these things that on the surface seemed like they were different, but actually, if you thought about it, they're the same, and they couldn't see the sameness. Um, And it just started bothering me a lot. I left Accenture and started my own company and that eventually got rolled into a dot-com of course. Um, But somewhere along the line, we wandered into semantics actually in the early nineties and said, you know, maybe if we, instead of basing our designs on structure that were just arbitrary. You know what? Every time we do a project, we just go out and interview everybody and ask them what things meant and write it down in boxes and arrows. And you know, before you knew it, you had another, another system and another arbitrarily different variation of the same thing. Yeah. And we thought maybe if we based it on what things really meant and what things, what was going on in the real world, you'd have sort of a hope and I guess, you know, that's what carries through the dot com and then that blew up. And um, then we just started doing semantics for our clients and it just kind of became
0: data centric, I guess. Yeah. So that's that's the, I guess, marketing term that you uh, picked up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it seems to be working.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I had a similar journey in the financial industry where I managed, like, I know, uh, a landscape of uh, probably hundreds of systems and integrations between them. And you sort of start, start seeing how information lives its own life through that constantly changing landscape. And you understand, boy, like, there's no way you can manage this uh, without uh, some sort of a semantic model mm-hmm. that sits on top of it at all. Yeah. So um, wh- what's your definition of uh, data centricity where you... Like how do you define it
1: yep i'm gonna give you a a word salad here and then i'm gonna pick it back apart again but i say it's a single simple extensible federatable and directly implementable model of all the information of your enterprise nice so we're gonna go i'm gonna go back through those one at a time but i think they're all pretty important single is actually there is a single model at the core of every enterprise. That that all those hundreds or thousands or occasionally tens of thousands of systems are storing different variations of a pretty, of a, of a single model. And the second word in that word sandwich I gave you was simple. It's not only there's a single model, it's a simple model. And by simple, I'm, I mean, you know, 500, maybe a thousand concepts at the outset, which sounds a little bit complicated. But if you look at, you know, an average system is already that complicated and something like SAP or Epic or any of those are hundreds of thousands of concepts, sometimes millions. So, so the second word was simple, single, simple, extensible, but having a model that cover, you know, we talk about the idea of, of covering concepts. So as long as you have the concept of person in your core model, which of course you do, everybody does, when you get down into the depths of some specific system, you may wanna specialize that a little bit, but you, mu- you wanna say these special kinds of people, they are people, but they're different in some way that's important down there in the in the depths of where you extend things. In fact, I just, I'm just, I'm just putting together a presentation for Ashta, which is the American State Highway Transportation Organization or something like that. Um, and I'm recycling some stuff I did a long time ago about concrete abstractions. <laughs> of course, <laughs> departments of transportation love concrete because they, that's what they deal with. But in their case, uh, a, a enterprise ontology we did for. Uh, Washington DOT had something called a roadway feature. And for them, a roadway feature is not what at least what I think. You know, I think a roadway feature is the world's largest ball of twine. You know, I've, that's some diversion for me to go off and not drive for a while. But no, for them, a roadway feature was anything close enough to a right of way that a car might hit it and, and harm itself. So it could be a big boulder. They didn't move a tree. They decided not to cut down a light pole was trapped in anything. And then when we got into one of their detailed systems, they had a database of fire hydrants and it seems like fire hydrants are something sem- separate, but no, actually fire hydrants are roadside features. They're almost always close to the road and you might run into them in your car. And anyways, that's extensible, single simple extensible, federatable, you know, there's a lot of people who think data centric, you have to centralize everything. You don't have to put everything. It's not like a data lake. It's not like a data warehouse. You know, we recommend that you do put a lot of stuff, the, the medium volume stuff into your shared knowledge graph, but there's some huge volume stuff. All of your IOT stuff, you don't want that in the same co-located in the graph, but you want it federatable. You want a query of the graph to be able to reach into your IOT at real time, get some information on you go. A single, simple, federatable, uh, implementable for a long time. There's a debate in the financial ontology circles as to whether ontologies were just conceptual or operational. And there's always been this discussion in, in relational world of conceptual, logical, physical, models, but the deeper you get into this, at least what we found. So if you design it properly, the logical model is the conceptual model is the physical model. We can't find any, you know, it's colon, person, colon, person, colon, person employed by, you know, um, and so design properly, your data centric model is directly implemented. You can put data right into it, ready to go. And then the final one, Single, simple, extensible, federatable. <laughs> Run through these uh, directly implementable. Yeah, left one out there. Oh well, <laughs> it'll come to me.
0: I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that. That's uh, interesting. Yeah, how you clarify specific aspects of the approach, right, to uh, define something as a data center. Yet, um, uh, you also talk about data centricity as a spectrum. Right from very right. Uh, sort of system centric or application system uh, application centric organizations to very data centric. Yeah. So, um, how do, do you define kind of gradations on that uh, spectrum? Yeah, and and it's it's really it's a gradation of
1: implementation. In fact, one of the reasons why I wanted to put that whole definition out there of single, simple, extensible, federatable, and and directly implementable, is I know that, that everybody that has a product is sooner or later going to show up and claim that it's data centric because that's only two words and they don't, but I want people to say, no, if you really are data it's all of that, but all, there's virtually no organizations that are completely data centric now. So you have to start somewhere you start in the corner of your, of your enterprise and start growing it out, if you will. And so it's just, it really, the, the, it's just, what percentage of your data landscape is in your data centric graph? And I suppose the second question is, and what percentage of your use cases are directly implemented in the graph? Cause you could, you could bring all of your enterprise data into a graph, but still be doing all the updates out in your legacy system. But you could also be, you know, what, what's different, I think, between a data centric knowledge graph and a data warehouse is you have the option of doing an update, a use case right in place on the graph. And gradually then become less and less dependent on your legacy systems.
0: Yeah. Uh, so can you measure it then, I guess, as a percentage of your data landscape? Yeah, we yeah. need a, a way to quantify it.
1: Yep. It's, it's, it's embarrassing how small those numbers are, you know, because when you think about it, a big company, if you have 10,000 applications and 10,000 silos, if you even get a hundred of them in there, you know, you're only at a percentage, <laughs> God, you know, it's good. It's going to take us a while to unwind what we've done for the last 40 or 50 years.
0: Yeah. The, the, they're also probably, uh, core systems, something that's uh, more relevant to the kind of core business and their auxiliary systems, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm guessing like no no, no one's really going to be putting into graph like things like, I know, uh, some HR systems or financial systems. So there's information from there, there can be useful in the graph, but probably companies that have their core, Mm -hmm. in a kind of graph like structure managed by graph. Maybe, maybe I don't know. There are some shades uh, of importance.
1: We're going to, we're going to be lighting, lighting the way on that one. And we're going to start small, but, uh, about a year ago, two years ago, I guess, I started thinking about this and realized that while this is good for large companies, it's gradual and incremental. And I really wanted some companies to get to pretty close to an end game. And we, I think we know what the end game looks like. It looks like all of your data in the knowledge graph and all of your use cases redone around that central model. Um, And we thought, well, a smaller company or a mid-sized company has a better shot of getting there more rapidly, but it's a lot of professional services. So we thought, how are we gonna kind of enable that? And we thought, well, probably The best thing was if you already had the starter set pretty complete enterprise ontology and most of the use cases and most of the workflows already worked out and just went in and converted and tweaked. And we then said the next logical conclusion was you pretty much have to pick a vertical industry for that to work. You can't have the out of the box experience that works everywhere. So we then said, how about, we go after something we know, which is professional services. We can experiment on ourselves. And if it works, we can take it to architects and engineers, people like that. We started down that road and all of a sudden and this, I'm glad I had my origin story early on the beginning of this started down this road. And all of a sudden, well, wait a minute, this is like 50% accounting in, in a professional services firm. Most of you, a lot of your information, I mean, there is, all the content and everything else and projects and stuff. But there's a lot of accounting in there. <clears throat> and I said, you know, I haven't even looked at an accounting system for 25 years. and so, it, But now I look at it again with, with my semantic goggles on and it's just like, whoa, it just blew my mind rethinking this. <clears throat> so I've recruited a, a professor of accounting Cheryl Dunn is with Grand Valley university. We're writing a book right now based on what we've learned from this. We're also implementing it. And the reason I wanted to tell this long story is once we can demonstrate that that is doable. I mean, that is a professional services core system, you know, between, between CRM, which, you know, you just bring into the graph and, you know, the whole sales thing, project management, accounting, staffing, staff, planning, recruiting. That's it.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I need to do something like that for my uh, consulting company. as well. (laughs) Yep. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Haven't gotten there yet. Well, give us, give us about a year. You know, we just
1: converted the first phase of this. We've actually, we've been running part of our company on a model driven, uh, data centric knowledge graph for 14 years. Now we've had this kind of hokey system that some interns built for us, but it's worked. We finally decided, you know, we have to take it to the next level, build a bit of architecture, which we've done literally just last week we converted over. So time, time control, project management, and the first part of the, we have a very complex, uh, gross payroll cop calculation. So the first part of the, the payroll system has been converted. And now we're just, we've got the model. We're just rolling out. And and the biggest piece that I'm working on right now is the accounting and, and just to give you a sneak preview of where that's going. um, When you really think about accounting, there are business events that occur in the business, not in the accounting department that, need to get reflected on the books and records of the firm. That's pretty much it. And it turns out that, and, but what happens now is business events occur in some application somewhere and they make their meander their way along and go into a spreadsheet and go somewhere. And some accountant decides, oh, that's revenue recognition or it isn't. And that's should be classified this way or it shouldn't. And I should allocate or I shouldn't and all that until you finally post it. And two weeks after the fact, you can find out how you did last month. Yeah, that's ridiculous. It is the the event occurs. We have a data centric representation of your accounting policy. Which, by the way, and I've read some of these FASBs, you know, that are hundreds of pages long, but when you distill it down for your industry and a handful of the decisions you get to make, it's dead easy. You just put it in the graph, the event occurs, it hits that, it does the valuation, you know, LIFO, FIFO, average cost, whatever you want to do based on the type of resource you have. Bingo. It's in the financials within seconds. Yeah. And you can also do
0: predictive analytics on that, right?
1: Yep. Yeah. And, and the one that's in between predict this, this is the hilarious one. There's something in between predictive and historical, which is commitments you're in the professional services business. I already know almost everything that's going to happen by the end of the month, even almost to the end of the year right now, because you know, you have longer term contracts. It's mostly, if you know what your staff plan is and your backlog, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and most of the expenses are not surprises, you know, we buy insurance and rent and stuff like that. So you can lay all that out as commitments and say, you know, how am I versus my commitment? And, and you know, and then just track, how, how often did I get surprised of actual versus commitment?
0: Not that much. Nice. That's awesome. So I'm guessing you can target professional services companies uh, as your next. Yeah. You know, Category for your clients. Yep, yep. Yep. Awesome. So, Dave, I'd like uh, like us to talk a bit about uh, knowledge graphs and semantics and ontologies Mm -hmm. because, uh, like, we both uh, preach knowledge graphs as sort of the the best tool for creating these abstract models Mm -hmm. to help us to manage information better. Um, How did you arrive at that conclusion that knowledge graphs are... Uh, the best tool, maybe talk a bit about what semantics uh, is, what uh, an ontology is, and how these concepts help enable data centricity,
1: yeah, wow, those are
0: some good ones
1: i think I think we backed into it. Maybe everybody does, but maybe not. i you know that is a good one, so you know we started by trying to have better models, which led us to semantics, which led us to owl, you know, which led us to thinking deeply about meaning. And then when we went to implement it, the the only logical thing to do was a knowledge graph, but much, maybe everybody didn't come to it from that direction. But I mean, once, once you come to it and you look at it and you say, wow, how how else would you do it? I mean, it's just so logical. Um, And I think the, two things that, that really help with the whole knowledge graph world. One is, is their inherent flexibility. You know, I tell people if you've got a relational structure and you've got a table with eight columns and you wake up tomorrow morning and you want row 900 to have a ninth column or whatever I said, you're out of luck. Either go build another table or a join or get everybody to agree. They need nine columns. But with the graph, it's just another triple. In fact, you may not even know you did it. You just said one more fact about this thing. And now that one has has nine edges off of it and the, all the rest of them only have eight. Great. <clears throat> um, but the other one, and where, you know, I really think the RDF knowledge graph distinguishes itself from other graph databases, is, is just this idea that everything has a globally result and global and resolvable ID. And those global and resolvable IDs give you data that's born integrated. You know, it, 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 as soon as you create a new piece of data, it's just integrated. There is no more integration to be done. And, and if anybody wants, if you want to publish what you know about that, that URI, great. And if you don't, and you let, public people resolve it. If you don't want to publish it, you don't have to. You don't even have to resolve it. It's just, it it is resolvable. You can find out what it means, but you don't have to
0: reveal it. Um, What do you think about uh, information management? Like the biggest problem of information management is managing the meaning of things at scale. True or not? Yeah.
1: Well, there is that. And when you say information management, it's funny. one of the big banks that we, we first came into them through the information management department, which is literally in the legal department. It's not in it. It has nothing to do. It's, it, it's, it's a cross cutting to it and it's what the legal department thinks about all that information you have. So they don't own it, but they have a lot of opinion. They have opinions about retention. They have opinions about e-discovery. They have, you know, opinions about PI. all that, you know, are opinions about the information of the firm. And so it's kind of a, I would have never guessed it. It was just, it was just luck that we ended up there, but it was a great, it was a great place to start. And, and I suppose we should go seek that out again. Um, but it, tells you that it is possible to
0: know what things mean, even if you don't literally own them. Yeah. Uh, So do you think, um, in an org structure that function of managing the meaning of things, should it be centralized? Should it be federated? Like how would you organize it in a large enterprise? Yeah. Um,
1: I, I think it kind of that where it seems to be working best is where it's kind of a combination. Um, you know, the data mesh people say it needs to be distributed, you know, the, the domain driven design, all that kind of stuff, which at least gives you some traction. It's It's kind of nice and you can get something done because it's a smaller scale, but that kind of ducks the integration issue. So I think, you know, I think you need some uh, centralized, but fairly small, uh, effort that is maintaining what is shared amongst the entire enterprise. In fact, it's what I call the single simple model is the shared bit. And as long as everyone else is extending it properly to their own purpose, they should be allowed to do that and, and, and then create their, their local meshes, but anyone who has authorization should be able to query the central thing and and obtain stuff that was
0: distributed so um imagine you come into an organization that has i don't know a thousand five thousand applications large organization you know, 10 20000 people and um where do you start um with data centricity like or maybe depending on where you are in the organization. But let's say you're in some leadership position, um, being responsible for data, for information. What would you do mm-hmm. to uh, move the organization in the kind of to, to, to the other, to the data centric side of the spectrum?
1: Yeah, well, we have this approach and methodology built around the approach that we call think big, start small and it was born of the observation actually the early days of semantic arts pretty much all we did was enterprise ontologies we believed that was the missing piece people weren't very good at it and we could come into an enterprise and build them an enterprise ontology in you know 6 to 8 months but then we noticed that they didn't do anything with it it became shelfware it was very frustrating and then at the same time we observed people were going in in an agile fashion and doing, you know, proofs of concepts and this and that, and, and even doing semantics, but these little shotgun individual things that never stitched together, we'd go into some big companies and and they'd send out an email and suddenly there'd be 20 people who were doing semantic projects, but they weren't connected at all. So he said, ah, that's be a better way. And we said the better way is do the two of these together just enough Do enough of the think big that you're future-proofing the first project you do, meaning we know exactly where the data that we've harvested and and harmonized, where does it fit in the bigger picture, and then you can just grow it out from there without having to refactor and redo and all that kind of stuff. So get back to your question: where where do you start? It almost doesn't matter. You have to start somewhere that's meaningful enough that that bringing together a couple of of data sets that haven't been properly aligned previously, and people can see them in the graph. And then they go, Oh, that's what you were talking about. So it could, you know, we're working with a network hardware company right now. And, and, you know, obviously we did the think big and the, and the start small area was, was to look at, they have all these, they have a whole lot of software that runs on their network devices. And every once in a while, they discover a bug in some software and it takes some weeks to figure out which customers devices are affected because there's a whole bunch of silos that just aren't snapped together. you know, just doing that, you know, is a great place to start because that's a known problem. And they see how, oh yeah, if you just, if you just integrated this data, you would actually, it'd be obvious.
0: So, um, what, what's your best advice to a digital leader? Who wants to be data centric, or maybe maybe uh, you can also phrase it in that way, like top three dos and top three don'ts <laughs> for digital leaders. Like, wow. what are th- some of the, the things that work uh, that you've seen from your experience? Like, top uh, three best advice, like do this, <laughs> and th- three top things to stay away from. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> never to try.
1: Wow, that's a good one. I, and let me just reflect for a moment. Huh? Um,
0: yeah, any, any, yep. any stories from uh, real life, yep. any uh, evidence that uh, you had from your vast experience yep. just happened, like um, there are lots of people who want to become data centric, that are craving for uh, advice, like trying to understand uh, what to do. Yep. So let's see.
1: One of them is, I mean, it, it is possible to start these initiatives in the IT department, but they almost always die there. And so if you're, if you happen to be in the IT department and have this idea, and it's it's more likely you are because, you know, the people that are attracted to this understand data in a way that, that a lot of IT people do and understand abstractions can see the value, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, unless you can reach out and find a co-sponsor in the business, you're eventually just gonna get ground down into that, into that IT grist mill. So that's one thought we've seen that many times. The other thing that I've only, and sometimes you look at situations over and over again and don't see until you finally go, oh yeah. For quite a while, we, we're looking for change agents because this is this is a big change. Uh, and, and we even said, and now I regret this, but we even said we're looking for people who are willing to bet their careers on this. It seemed a little extreme at the time, and it turns out maybe just projecting like that we made it so several of our clients, the change agent that brought us in, got ejected. And sometimes the project succeeds, but very often it doesn't and this stuff. And so, um, and, and there's this really weird dynamic. And and one of one of one of my hobbies that I don't think I have time for that I'm but I'm dying to figure out is what I'm now calling social architecture. There is a way that organizations interact with themselves and how they communicate behind the scenes. It's even harder to figure it out. Now that everything's remote, you know, how does an organization come to consensus that this is the new way of doing things? And it's, it's the weirdest thing. And if you could, if we could somehow describe that and tap into it, I think we could, we could accelerate it a bit more, but what I'm now coming to believe. And I just, I've, I've been reading a, some books on how organizations change and all that kind of stuff. There are, people in an organization who, um, who have risen as high as they want to rise and want to become indispensable to the organization. So they want to stay and they want to have a nice career where they are. And if those people become the agents for change, they're not, they're not disruptive. You know, some change agents are kind of disruptive and do get expelled. Um, and i used yeah. to like those people a lot they're more fun and they but I <laughs> to recognize no you need you need some people that with a kind of a steady hand on the rudder that that can can keep this thing going for quite a while so that's one of the things i would look for um you know there's just some simple things at almost every place we go into the first thing people want to do is is select some software, select a triple store before they even really know what a graph is. I don't know. It's just a, people like to do that. It's, it's really not necessary. It's kind of a distraction. They, they create incredible long requirements, checklists. I don't know. People always feel like I have to have this, I have to have hundreds of things on my checklist and drag these people through this stuff, man, that's not productive. You can, you can I I really recommend you do your first project on a community edition of of a triple store. There's plenty of them out there. They all have them. You can, you can do your first project without committing at all. And then you'll be smart enough to know, Oh, what are my real requirements? And it turns out one of your requirements I think should be, I want to be as close to standards compliant as I can. because I, I don't want to bet on a vendor. I want to bet on standards. And so my main requirement is be standards compliant. Well, then, you know, any, it's almost doesn't matter what you choose, just pick one. They're all standards compliant. Don't use the, don't use the extensions. You know, you, you should be fine. Oh, another, another you. Know, so I didn't rehearse this as you can tell. Um, <clears throat> another one that's interesting is what they call proof of concepts. People like to do proof of concepts. We recommend you don't do proof of concepts. And, and and it was actually the story from one of our other clients. We were in there and and they were just talking amongst themselves about proof of concepts. And they, they admitted, they said, you know, we use so many proof of concepts. We, you know, we call them pocks. We do so many. What? Let's do a pock for this and a pock for that. And he said, but, you know, we've started to notice every once in a while, we'll, we'll come up with a pock. We'll tell a vendor, can you make the sky purple? And they go away for a couple of months. They come back and we go, "Wow, look at that! The sky is purple. What are we going to do with a purple sky?" You know, and it's almost that absurd. And, and and so the real problem with proof concepts: a, it makes everybody feel like something's happening, and the and the vendors will do it do it gladly because that's part of their checklist. You know, their their process of how you get a sale made. Oh, let's do a proof concept. And it encourages this behavior, but a, you don't need a proof of concept. This, this, I have a cartoon that I was going to use for Ashto of this executive in a, in a boardroom standing up saying what we need here is a breakthrough idea. That's been thoroughly tested.
0: <laughs> that's what we have. This is
1: a, as far as you're concerned, this is a breakthrough idea. Cause you're not in the 1% that have adopted already. But the industry they've been doing this for 15 years now. It's so thoroughly tested. It's ridiculous. But anyway, so you don't need to prove it in the way that NASA has to prove things that are going to fly into space and never been done before. This has been done hundreds and hundreds of times, thousands of times. It doesn't need a proof. And these little trivial abstractions um, never land with sponsors. They look at it and they can't make the connection between what they're seeing and a business problem. So you have to take it a lot further than a proof of concept. An actual pilot solving a real problem with their data, such that when they see it, they go, oh yeah, I never thought of it that way.
0: Well, wow. that's some profound wisdom right Ooh. there. <laughs>
1: I don't know about that, but, you know, it's like anything else. If you you do enough projects and just observe, you just
0: see things. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm a big um, kind of proponent of proof of concepts when it comes to testing new vendor technology, because I had enough uh, failed promises from vendors. Just uh, know that you have to test everything, right? Mm -hmm. That they promise. Yeah. But with tested vendors, with tested processes, uh, an approach that has been tested hundreds of times yeah for sure like it's it's a waste yeah yeah so uh dave do you want to talk a bit about semantic arts and what you guys do uh your services sure. your value proposition
1: sure um we do what we've just been talking about <laughs> we yeah. help people get on this journey and, and and stay on it and and you know it's it's all professional services um there's about 30 of us and so we're not a giant organization so we can only take on a handful of new clients every year. Um, and what we do is we only do one thing. I mean, we're total hedgehogs about this stuff and, and it's this think big, start small. We just help people identify the area they want to start in. We help them you know, craft their enterprise ontology, harmonize some data with that. And then from there it's lather, rinse, repeat. It's a very apprenticeship kind of program. When we go into a firm, you know, the first project we do a client, typically they're not sure whether this is really going to work. So they don't assign too many people to it. They you need know, some lookers and obviously a steering committee and stuff. But by the second and third project, they're starting to hire some of their own people. They want to learn this and we happy to teach them. And, and there's plenty of work to do, just growing out the the footprint of all the domains they typically have. So That's it. It's pretty simple,
0: actually. How, like, do you have a vision for semantic arts? How do you see the firm in, I know, two, three, five years?
1: Yeah, I just did some calculation recently and I've, I've found that we now are one, one thousandth of 1% of our addressable market. (laughs) And my goal in the next three years is to get to two one thousand one percent.
0: Double. <laughs> We're going to
1: double, and and you know it sounds hilarious, sort of, um, but it's true. You know, we've been sitting there, we've been doubling about every three years now for the last three or four years. It's that's twenty five percent growth per year, which in the internet world and all that stuff, that's nothing. They don't care. You know, VCs don't care about that. That's not fast enough. But professional services, that's about as fast as you should try and grow. If you try and grow faster than that quality is going to go out the window, the whole wheel is going to fall off the bus. It's not going to work. So, so that's our objective. And um, you know, in order to get from one 1,000th one of a percent to two one thousandths of a percent, that's not much in the market. It's a lot for us, but it's, it's not much in the market.
0: Yeah. So let me ask you what I've been asking uh, a lot of uh, leaders in the space. Do you think uh, something like a semantic core, um, probably a graph, will be um, basically a, a requirement of doing business at some, at some point, right? So th- uh, Today, lots of companies, even startups, when uh, they start business, they have books of records, they have an HR system, a CRM, things like that, right? So these are all the uh, pieces of the data slash technology landscape. That are uh, just a requirement to have some sort of a digitalization, right? So, do you think a um, things are uh, things like a knowledge graph or a knowledge graph based semantic core uh, will be a required foundational piece in the like as part of company's digital landscape? And if yes, when do you think that time will come? Yeah, it, it,
1: there's there's going to be a long time in between. When it's a good thing and when it's required. Mm-hmm. In fact, it already is a good thing. Yeah, it's going to be a long time before it's required. In fact, I think the one of the one of the biggest impediments is is sort of what you you suggested there, where you you're talking. The most successful application software companies right now are almost all horizontal companies. And by horizontal, they do HR or accounting or CRM or ticketing or whatever they do. And because it's horizontal, it means de facto, it's not integrated with the other horizontals or anything else the company is doing that happens to be unique for this vertical industry. So I don't think that people are going to make a lot of progress until they start going more vertical. Interesting which is kind of what we're trying to do with professional services. We want to show the way there, but, but, you know, do do we have time for a kind of a ridiculous story, but it's one of my favorites. Absolutely. How, How we came to some of these strange ideas. So way back when, when object oriented was just new and the earth was still cooling and all that kind of stuff, we came across this guy who ran a lumber yard in Jackson hole, Wyoming was very successful, but hated the software that he ran, that this company ran There's, there's lumber yard software. That's a top, that's a category you've probably never heard of before, but it exists. trust me. And so he joins the user group for the software thing and can't influence him. Then he buys the software company and moves to Connecticut to try and get them to do what he, he was a smart guy in MBA and very computer literate, try to get them to do what he wanted. He still couldn't get them to do what he wanted to do. So he sells the company back again, moves back to Denver, and decides that he's gonna create the ultimate lumberyard software thing, but not just stick stay with lumberyards. He had the very uh, sage observation that actually lumberyards are only about 1% different than any other point of sale system, a jewelry store, a grocery store or whatever, but Lumberyard will never buy a jewelry company's system because we're different. We have board feet and jewelry stores have carrots and you know, it'll never. Now he recognized, you know, if you did this object oriented, now if we did it semantically, you could just implement that 1% difference and have one platform that that did it all. So yeah, off we go, we're, we're starting to build any and, and he had all kinds of other interesting observations about how vertical software industries actually work. Um, he's every vertical. And by the way, I'll bet there are a thousand verticals, but we'll get to that and just, you'll see, you'll get an idea about this in just a second. Every vertical, has five incumbent software companies that go to all the trade shows for that vertical, and they have the booths. And one of them has forty or fifty percent of the market. One of them has twenty or thirty. One of them has ten. There's a couple. One of these, and it was also his observation that if you built a better mousetrap, the number one and number two weren't interested. We're always going to be number one and number two in this industry. So you have to go after the other folks. Anyway, unfortunately he acquired a couple of other lumber yards that got in deep financial trouble. The project stalled right there. Meanwhile, we're off looking at, at object oriented databases in the day. And we came across this company that had this beautiful tri-fold brochure about, they had an object oriented database. They also had fiber optic communications, which at the time was a brand new thing. And Hydroponic lobster farming. <laughs> what kind of business? As an object-oriented database, fiber optic, and hydroponic lobster farming. But anyway, so we're starting to pursue this, and right as we're pursuing it, I used to subscribe to this little newsletter for independent software vendors, and it had a it had a write to the editor thing. Dear Dave, his name was Dave also, and it was just like Dear Abby. These people would write in with their woes, and he he would just give them this you know, dear Abby style advice back. And this one guy wrote in, I can't believe they said this, but they said, you know, three of us left our prior prior employers and took the software with us. I can't believe they admitted that in print, but we took their software. And uh, for the last three years, we've decided to focus all of our attention on three main markets. So we decided to go after manufacturing services and locksmiths. And you're going so the first okay. two is almost everything and the last one is this little tiny sliver and he said so and what we found over the last three years you know did you know there's 6500 locksmiths in the country and they don't have very good systems oh he goes on and, on and on and old dave just deadpans right back he says you know i think you're on to something with the locksmiths <laughs> there so we look at all this and we say, wait a minute mm-hmm. the universe is speaking to us lumberyards lobster farming locksmiths. We should just go after anything that starts with an L <laughs> but there's hundreds yeah. of software verticals that start with an L it's, it's, we just would sit in bars and make them up. Yeah. Right? It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> but anyway, which caused me to believe that there are lots of addressable narrow vertical, mostly small to mid-sized companies, but still there's a lot of them that,
0: that you can go after with this. Yeah. And these companies, they probably don't realize, right. They are, they're looking for a solution specifically for their industry. Right. right? And they don't realize that they can easily customize it. Right. Exactly. It never occurs though. Yeah.
1: And, and, and partly, this is, this is learned helplessness for the last 40 years you couldn't customize software. It was it, too hard, big and brittle and millions of lines of code and good luck trying to customize that. But now no model driven, simple,
0: small, small model.
1: Yeah. Not too bad.
0: Yeah. Low code, no code that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. ai exactly. driven assisted. Yep. 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 Yeah. 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 I wonder how long market forces, um, will take to, uh, make, I don't know, a significant percentage of companies data centric. think like when, when you look at like highly data centric orgs, uh, their competition can only dream about what those guys can do. Like they're the, just the agility, like yep. the flexibility, um, how they can adjust to changing conditions, like the, the whole kind of survivability. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, it's my very, very core belief that, um, non-data centric companies like, they just don't stand the chance like if, if there's a disrupt disruptor that yep. is heavily data centric in your industry just be, pre- be prepared he's going to take you over you're not going to be able to compete yep so that, yep. that that's, what why I'm, that's why that's why i'm doing what i've been doing the last three four years which is kind of yeah. evangelizing this concept and uh, trying to get more people on board
1: yeah no i usually I, I agree with you completely and hugely appreciate you know, the work you're doing.
0: Yeah. Dave, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast today. Yeah. Um, Hope uh, you'll visit us in the future as well. I'd be happy to. And yeah, is there anything else you'd like to share with with our audience?
1: No, I think that was enough storytelling for today.
0: (laughs) Great, well, thanks, Ruben. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Data Centric Podcast. Be sure to check out the links in the description for more information and resources mentioned in this episode. And if you're looking to really accelerate your data-centric journey, check out my online course, The Data-Centric Executive. Go to datacentricexecutive.com and use the coupon code PODCAST20 to get 20% off. Tune in next week as we continue exploring the world of data-centricity together.